And I've been asked to read the scripture, which is found in Second uh, Samuel 10, and uh, that's going to be what we'll, the sermon is going to be about. After this, the king of the Ammonites died, and Hanan, his son, reigned in his place. And David said, I will deal royally with Hanan, the son of Nahash, as his father dealt loyally with me. So David sent by his servants to console him concerning his father. And David's servants came into the land of the Ammonites. But the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanan, their lord, Do you think because David has sent comforters to you that he is honoring your father? Has not David sent his servants to you to search the city and spy it out and overthrow it? So Hanan took David's servants and shaved off half the beard of each and cut off the garments in the middle at their hips and sent them away. When it was told to David, he sent to meet them, for the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, Remain at Jericho until your beards have grown and then return. When the Ammonites saw that they had become a stench to David, the Ammonites sent and hired the Syrians of Beth-Rehob and the Syrians of Zobah, uh, 20,000 foot soldiers, and the king of Makkah with 10,000 men, and the men of Tob, 12,000 men. And when David heard it, he sent Joab and all the hosts of the mighty men. And the Ammonites came out and drew up in battle array at the entrance of the gate. And the Syrians of Zohab and Rehob and the men of Tob and Makkah were by themselves in the open country. When Job saw that the battle was set against him both in front and in the rear, he chose some of the best men of Israel and arrayed them against the Syrians. The rest of his men he put in, in the charge of Abishai, his brother, and he arrayed them against the Ammonites. And he said, if the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. Be of good courage, and I'll just be courageous for our people and for the cities of God, and may the Lord do what seems good to him. So Joab and the people who were with him drew near to battle against the Syrians, and they fled before him. And when the Ammonites saw that the Syrians fled, they likewise fled before Abishai and entered the city. Then Joab returned from fighting against the Ammonites and came to Jerusalem. But when the Syrians saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they gathered themselves together. And Hadad-Dazar sent and brought out to the Syrians, uh, out the Syrians who were beyond the Euphrates. They came to Helam, and Shobak, the commander of the army of Hadad-Dazar, at his head. And when it was told David, he gathered all Israel together and crossed the Jordan and came to Helam. The Syrians arranged themselves against David and fought with him. And the Syrians fled before Israel, and David killed of the Syrians the men of 700 chariots and 40,000 horsemen, and wounded uh, Shobach, the commander of their army, so that he died there. And when all the kings who were servants of Hadadazar saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and became subject to them. So the Syrians were afraid to save the Ammonites anymore. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. My apologies. That was his outgoing punishment. <laughs> you didn't want to be an elder anymore, so you got to read all these Hebrew names. <laughs> As I'm looking, I'm thinking, poor Cal. Um, so, you know, this is one of those passages that when you read it as a pastor or as a, as a scholar, you kind of get discouraged when you have to preach it, about it and from it because 
every, literally every commentator says it's kind of a throwaway chapter. It's there to build up and to show you that David has reached the peak of his powers just before the next chapter, which is the Bathsheba chapter. So it's meant to show you that he's, look how high he is, and then now watch how he falls. However, I don't think that that's fair. I, don't, I mean, it, it certainly does that, because David is at his height of his powers. It says that he assembles all of Israel behind him to fight. His borders are now as big as Israel's borders will ever be. Okay, and assume, now including areas that are like Syria and, the, and Jordan today. So it's big, everybody loves him, he's powerful, he's winning, everything looks really good for David. So that's true, it does build us up. However, there's something I think much more, not, I won't say more significant, but something interesting going on. So last week in chapter 9, with the Mephibosheth chapter, we saw that it was about a guy surrendering, a man who was crippled and helpless in his culture, and he has to come and surrender before the king. He has no choice because he's powerless in that culture and before the king, so he surrenders. Now we're seeing surrender is still a topic. It's still an issue here. The only difference is now we're seeing a different aspect. We are seeing what happens in the human heart when we refuse to surrender when the enemies refuse to bow before their king. And I think it's actually a great diagnosis of the human heart. I think this passage, when you see it, will show us three things. Sorry. It shows us that the human heart is self-assured, it is self-centered, and it is self-destructive. Okay? Self-assured, self-centered, and self-destructive. So let's begin with self-centered. Let's tell the story. What's going on in this passage? Nahash. You may remember him if you're really good. You remember that in 1 Samuel 7, uh, 11, I preached on about Nahash. Nahash was a king of the Ammonites, and he had surrounded the city of Jabesh-Gilead, and they were refusing to surrender. And he said, if you surrender, I'll be nice. I'll only gouge out your right eye. Remember him now? And Saul gets called, and Saul comes to the rescue and saves them. So it's a little strange that we hear now that David was on very good terms with this king who was so brutal. So, in fact, not just good terms, when it says that they dealt loyally with one another, that word loyal is the word hesed. Remember that word? We've been talking about it the last few weeks. That David, having experienced this loyal love of God, the hesed of God, then seeks to push that love out into the world. And he now seeks to treat even his, not his enemies, but his allies and other nations with loving kindness. So he says, I'm going to treat this new king, the son of Nahash, Hanun, with Hesed, because he had showed me Hesed. So a little bizarre, isn't it, that David is, this is why I think we have to be very weary about David at times. He was comfortable making a treaty with the enemy of his nation because they had a mutual enemy, right? Saul. And so Nahash, of course, is thinking, I want David on my side because he doesn't like, you know, Saul doesn't like him. So they have this, this treaty of some type, some sort of understanding. So when he dies, Nahash, David says, let me send counselors, or con uh, literally counselors, it's consolers. He sends an envoy to the Ammonites, which is due east, for you, east of Israel. And this is quite normal, right? This is what we do uh, today still. When a head of state dies, we still send envoys to express our condolences and so on. So it's quite normal. And yet, when David sends these men there, the princes around Hanan say, hey, you know what? He's not here to honor you. He's here to overthrow you. The Hebrew words are great. It says, he's not here to give you kabod, glory. He's instead here to give you hafek, 
He's here to just, he's here to, he's casing the joint. That's what he's doing. He's sending these guys and he's casing the joint. Now, these princes are wrong. However, they're not, you can understand why they're thinking this. In the ancient world, the, a, a nation was always just a little weak and unstable when the new king came to power. Because you never know if he actually has the support of his people. Remember when David just now came to power at the beginning of 2 Samuel, he is trying to establish control because there's a group of people that want um, uh, Ishbosheth to be king, if you remember that. So, so these guys are thinking, you know, maybe he's here trying to see if there's any weakness and if he can dominate us. And the king takes their counsel and says, you know, you're probably right. So his response to David is to take these envoys and to shave half their beard and then to cut off their garments here to reveal their genitals so that they are shamed in the ancient culture. Today, it would be shameful as well, probably be considered more juvenile an act. But in that time, it was incredibly shameful. And you see David showing great sensitivity, saying to the men, don't go back yet. Stay here in Jericho until you've your beards have grown back. You've endured enough shame. Don't go back home and get it from the Israelites too. So great sensitivity by David. So this is clearly a provocation for war. The king of Ammon, Hanun, this young man who's come to power, he knows this is an act of war. He knows it is because he's about to set up an army to fight. The question is, why would he do it? Why, when David seems to have just sent envoys like other nations probably did, why does he feel the need to do this to David. And the reason is, if you know your history, it's because it's an assertion of independence. Because the Ammonites were subject to Israel. It's a rebellion. What you're seeing here in this entire chapter is a rebellion. Israel, from Saul, had dominated the Ammonites. And then in chapter 8, which we didn't talk about, we didn't preach, it goes through, remember I mentioned that David did a mop-up, so, you know, he kind of cleaned up all the opposition he had in the region, and he, he dominated all those nations. Well, the Syrians, the Arameans, some of your translations may say Aram, which is the ancient word for, for Syria, and the Ammonites were amongst that group. So they are under the foot of Israel. And so when they, when they do this and have this provocation for war, what they're saying is, we want to lead. We know better than David. We don't want him to lead, be leader over us. It's an act of self-assertion, right? That's what they're doing. They're saying, I want to lead. We know better than David. And this is... So let's think about this. The entire time they are dominated by Israel, they're just biding their time. They accept David as ruler just because they have no choice, but they're just waiting for a chance to stick it to him and to regain their independence, which is exactly what most of us do. Most of us, when we come before God, and this is the tragic part and the scary part of the New Testament when, God, when Christ says that many people in the end will come to him and say, Lord, Lord, and he won't know them. There's many people in the church, and statistically, there must be people in this room too, who are going along. They're following the rules and everything looks good, but they're just waiting to assert their independence. They may give lip service to the king, but they don't serve the king. And that's exactly what these guys are doing to David. They don't trust him. And this is not surprising. This is exactly what we've been told is the nature of the human heart, that we are self-assured. We know better than God. Psalm 2 Verses 1 to 3 say this. Let's put it up on the screens if you don't mind. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. What God is saying is he and his anointed, his Messiah, 
Christ, are ruling. But the nations gather together and say, let us burst these bonds. It's, it's, the, it's literally the words chains and then the yoke that an oxen has. Take this yoke from off my neck. We don't want to be ruled by anybody. And that is certainly something we see. Nobody likes to be bound. We don't like it. And in some cases, we understand it. Nations shouldn't bind other nations. And that's why you see rebellions always happening. That's why, if you know the history of the ancient world, it's very, very uh, uh, unstable. There's always new kings and new kingdoms and borders are being redrawn because we can't stand to have a yoke around our neck. And so, Hanun's refusal to submit to the king is symbolic of our refusal. And it's stark contrast to Mephibosheth, who in the previous chapter bows before the king. So it's in it where I think we're meant to see that. So we are, the human heart is self-assured. We know better than the king. That's the first thing. Second thing is the human heart is self-centered. Now, let's go back into the story. Ammon, the Ammonites know that the war will come, that this act against the envoys is an assertion of war, and he then goes and he hires the, Assyri- sorry, the Syrians to help. And again, if you have the NIV, NRSV, New Living Translation, those will say Aram or the Arameans because that was the ancient name for these people who are now in the area of Syria. Okay, up here, sorry. Israel's here, Syria, up here. And same thing. But he goes and he hires them as mercenaries to help him fight. Now, notice what's happening. The Ammonites have a beef with David. The Ammonites want above all, to be independent. They want to remove their own shame of being under the thumb of Israel. And as a result, they then hire other people to help them do it. They care nothing for the Arameans or the Syrians. Their sole desire is to have their, certain, their will accomplished. We want independence and we'll bring anyone along and use anyone we can to accomplish what we want. And so they hire the Syrians. Now the Syrians certainly were also under the thumb of David, so they probably thought... We have a better chance if we partner with Ammon to throw this yoke from off our neck. And yet you see the self-centeredness of the heart that says, I want independence and I will use any of you to do it. And we do this continually in real life. Think about how we will use, oh boy, I've got so many here. Marriages. Marriages are often, more and more today, in fact, if you read about why people get married today, one of the top questions that young people in Canada are asking is, Will this person help me accomplish where I, my goals for myself or hinder me? Is this a good partner to get me to where I want to be? It's one of the key questions we're asking. So self-centered people will use marriages for themselves. Self-centered people use businesses for themselves. I'm going to use the money and the power and the platform of this business to accomplish my quest for power. We'll use the church and religion this way. I will use God and the Bible and the church to, give, to help me feel better about myself. I feel guilty about what I've done to my kids and my family, so in the church, I can regain some of that by being a good person and, by, and being moralistic, right? Doing the right things, and I'll feel better. Church is treated like a morality car wash by many people. You come in dirty, and you leave clean on a Sunday. So that's what self-centered people do. We ask, what can I do? How can I sacrifice something else on the altar of my self-interest? That's what we're trying to do as self-centered people. Now, Ammon, the tragedy is that Ammon doesn't just use Syria, but he drags them into sin with them. Surely they were interested in rebellion or they wouldn't have said yes. But there is something biblically that is going to, may sound weird, but you'll see it in Scripture so clearly, that says there is something 
especially despicable about dragging somebody else into sin with you. It's bad enough that you do it yourself, but to drag them in, see, this is what self-centered people do. I'll take you all with me. I don't care about you. I care about my, my well-being, my goals, whatever they are. And so think about what Jesus says himself twice. Well, I'm going to choose two because we don't do more. But in John 19, Jesus is standing before Pontius Pilate, and he's, and, and he's being interrogated by Pilate. And here's what it says. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given, to, given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. See what he's saying? It may be uncomfortable, but Jesus is saying quite clearly, and he says it again later, well, a different gospel. He says, there are degrees of punishment for sin. Uncomfortable? Maybe. But what he's saying is, you have this one spot, Pilate, but the one who sold me to you, now that's the person. And who is that? Is it Judas? Is it the leaders? Yes, all of the above. And in Matthew 18, he says something very similar. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me, believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. You see, self-centeredness is, if I'm allowed to mix metaphors, it's like a black hole. It'll suck anything in indiscriminately just to fill itself up. Anything, it'll do whatever it can to drag other people down. It can't stay hidden. It can't stay contained. It must breed. It must drag in. It must feed off something. And this is what we are seeing here. We are convinced then. So we have two things. First, we are convinced that we can rule better than God. That's what the heart tells us. Self-assured. Then the heart very clearly tells us that only we matter. Anything but me should be sacrificed for my self-interest. So we're self-assured, self-centered. But then, tragically, we're also self-destructive. The story continues. Joab. See, what's happening? I wish I had a map. I should have made a map for you. So you have Israel here. You have the Syrians up here. You have the Ammonites directly east. Now, when they go to war, Joab comes out to fight um, Rahab, uh, Rahab, sorry, Rahab, Rahab. Rabbah, the capital city of Ammon. He comes out with his army. But when he gets there, he realizes the, Assyri the Syrians are coming from the, the north. And so he has a two-front battle he has to fight. So wisely, he splits up the army. He says, Abishai, his brother, and Abishai is... Uh, these guys are like... If you, if you just read the, the stories about these two guys, they are incredibly brutal. Like, they are, they are great knife men to have around. And Joab says, we're going to split up. I, Joab, rightly, as the general of the Israelite army, says, I'll take the harder ones. I'll take the Syrians. I'll take the north. You go at the city of Rabbah. And then, you know, we'll figure out if we, if we need help, we'll help each other. They rout the enemy. That is a, is a given. That's clear. So, after this is done, do they accept defeat? Do the Syrians accept defeat? No. We hear that Hadadezer, sorry, Cal, um, which is, anyway, we'll say what it means. He's the king of Syria, and he says, you know what? I am not prepared to accept this defeat. So he grabs reinforcements from the other side of the Euphrates River, and he then sends Shobak, his general, his version of Joab, down to Halam to go fight. And he says, we're, gonna, we're not done. We refuse to submit. We're going to try it again. And this time, David comes out and fights. And David crushes them. It's actually quite, it seems quite resounding that David destroys him. Now, 
At the end of this battle, all the people involved are resubjugated. So they're forced again to submit to Israel. They're beaten, they're defeated, and a lot of them would have been destroyed because, you know, it's bad enough when you have to take over a place. But when they rebel, you want to make an example of them. So the Israelites, like it or not, were a brutal people in war. They were told to be brutal at times. And so they begin, they would have smashed a lot of these cities to the ground. Now, why did it take that to get them to submit? See, the human heart has no desire in being ruled. It would rather die than give up its control. It would rather die. You know, and I, I was reminded of a story I heard. It was actually an old book, and I've heard it a number of times since, called The Monkey Trap. I hope we can put the picture up. So there's this, um, there's apparently a way to catch a monkey. You see, monkey, if you take a coconut and you tie it to a tree or something stable, and then you drill a hole in the coconut and hollow it out, and then you put fruit in the, in the coconut, make the hole just big enough that the monkey can get his hand into, but so small that he can't get it back out when his hand is fit, clinched with the food. And the monkey will not drop the food, ever. Even if he gets killed and is trapped in a net, he will not let go of the food. He'd rather die than let go of the food. And there's YouTube videos, it's, I mean, they don't get killed, but they show them struggling, like spinning, doing gymnastics, but they won't let go. All they have to do is let go, and they'd be free. And yet they refuse to do it. So why do they do it? Now, monkeys are not humans, but they're not really, it's not so much the fruit, it's the idea. Somewhere in nature, I assume, if I put my monkey hat on, <laughs> somewhere in nature, the monkey has decided, food is scarce, and if I let go of the food, I'll never, I may never get it again. So I can't let it go. I can't let it go, because if I'd let it go, I could die not realizing that his freedom comes in letting go of the fruit. And in the same way we see displayed here, I think, these guys refusing to submit. Now, David is not God. He is another tyrant of a leader at times, and I understand that we fight for uh, freedom from other nations, and that's just, I can understand that. But But the pointing us towards what we do with our king, that we refuse to give up power. We refuse to surrender. And the question is, how do we do it? If we are people who are being told and we, we claim that we have surrendered to God, how can you do it? Like, how do you surrender to, a, to someone, all things to someone? Surrender everything, your life and all. This is the name, surrender all, is from that old hymn, right? I surrender all, you probably know it. How, would we, how, do you, how can you possibly do it? And I'll use one quote from a woman who's, uh, well, she's passed away in 2002. June Jordan was an American poet, and she was... I disagree with all of the way she thinks, everything. But she's got this part right. Let me read it. I can read it from here, actually. Self-determination has to mean that the leader is your individual gut and heart and mind, or we're talking about power again, and it's rather well-known impurities. Who is really going to care when you live or die, and who is going to know the most intimate motivation of your laughter and your tears is the only person to be trusted to speak for you and to decide what you will or will not do. Now, what she's saying is, now, again, she's talking about a very different time, a different generation about civil rights and things, and I can appreciate that. But listen to what she says. The only person who you should surrender your life to, who you should give the keys of your life over to, is one who cares about whether you live or die and knows the motivation of your laughter and your tears. That person can then be trusted with your life. And so you can appreciate that 
Hanun and his people don't trust David, and they shouldn't. David, in a few verses, is going to prove he should not be trusted with your life. But Joab's words in this passage show us how we can surrender, how we can take the hands off. Isn't it tiring to be the monkey? Isn't it tiring to worry every time a paycheck doesn't come through? Or every time a diagnosis comes and you go to the doctor, you're waiting for your blood results? Or the phone rings late at night? Isn't it difficult and tiring to hold on? That doesn't mean surrendering responsibility. You still have a job to do. But it's tiring. How can we possibly do it? Now look at what Joab says. And Joab is a scoundrel. I've, I love the character of Joab because if you look at all the times in Samuel and Kings that he's mentioned, he is a very difficult character to like. But here, I think you may be seeing him at his best. This may be the best Joab ever gets in the Bible. In verse 11 and 12, he says, If the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. Here it is. Be of good courage, and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God, and may the Lord do what seems good to him. Now, what Joab is doing you have to read it in reverse. Because he trusts God with the outcome of the battle, he can be courageous. You see, because he knows that God can be trusted to do what is right, even if it means Israel loses, he says, because I don't have to worry about the outcome of the war, I am free to fight and to be courageous and to be bold. I don't need to worry about the end because you know what happens when you're worried about the end? You, see, you save some money, right? Let's not be reckless here because I have meal tomorrow. When you're worried about tomorrow, you can't be free today. And Joab seems to have at least understood this for this moment. And he says, I can be free now because I'm not concerned with the outcome of my war. I can care for the people and the cities of God. And this trust in God, knowing that God knows the motivations of his tears and his laughter. God is the only one who knows. And as a result, he's the only one who can be trusted to be the one to whom we surrender. And, of course, where do we see this trust best? It's at the cross. It's at the cross that we see that God can be trusted because he saw our tears and he knew what would get us to laugh again. And what it was, unfortunately for, I mean, fortunately for us, it's kind of why the ancient church called it the, the, happy, the happy fall, or the, uh, the, not the happy fall, um, what's it called in Latin? I don't remember the Latin. Colva. Uh, anyway, the happy, they called it the happy fall. And for years, I remember thinking, what's so happy about the fall? It's not that the fall is happy. It's that because he, we fell, we then got this savior, this great savior. And as a result, we can rejoice. And we look at the cross, we see that he saw our inability to pay, that we couldn't let go of the fruit and the coconut. And so he came and he did it. He paid the price for our refusing to let go. And on the cross, he was treated that way. And it's important that this, it's funny that I didn't plan this to happen on Remembrance Day, but it's all about war. Until we accept the son that was altered on the altar for our sin, we will continue to offer up our sons on the altar of war. We're going to continue. Nothing's going to stop it unless we accept Christ. It's quite simple. The only cure for our self-assured, self-centered, and self-destructive hearts is a surrender to a king who is also our savior. If you haven't done that, do it. You're going to have time and communion to lay your heart before God and choose him, and then in prayer as well afterwards. But I'm telling you, if you're a Christian, surrender it. We're all holding on to something. We're all a monkey in somewhere, in some area. 
Let it go so you can be free. And if you're not a Christian, let it go so you can be free. Let's pray.